So welcome everybody um, to Journeys Through Genesis. Um, we're just waiting on Rabbi Silber. Um, I'm not sure if you can see my camera's going a bit, so I'm just going to turn that off for a second. Um, so we're just waiting for uh, Rabbi Silber, who will be teaching today. Um, so just while while we're waiting, I'm just going to explain to you um, uh, some features of Zoom. Um, I'm going to invite uh, you as you join to join as a panelist. That just means that you can choose to turn your camera on and we can see your uh, wonderful faces. You can unmute to ask questions if you wish. Um, so feel free to join or not join as you um, we just ask that uh, while you're not actively uh, asking a question or making a comment, you keep yourself on mute to minimize background noise. Um, and uh, there are several options for engagement as we're all on Zoom here, but you can also join um, on our Facebook live stream. Uh, you can put questions or comments in the chat or joining on the live stream you can put them as uh comments uh on facebook and i will bring them to the chat on the zoom so rabbi silver can see them uh and with that um i think rabbi silver's here so we can yes i am oh. uh, okay thank you very much uh it's good to be with you as we begin our uh, learning, continuing the uh, Book of Breshit. So we're hopefully going to complete uh, some point during this, uh, these two sessions, that is the uh, spring session. Hopefully we'll, I'm hopeful we'll complete uh, Safer uh, Breshit. If not this set of sessions and, you know, after Pesach, whatever, but. Anyway, we're up to the, um, we'll begin with the story of the brothers have, uh, have returned home. And uh, when they return home uh, with the food, uh, one of them is held captive in the land of Egypt. That's the second oldest son, Shimon. Yosef, whom they don't recognize, has accused them of being spies of seeking out the weak, looking at the weak points of the land, he accused them of being spies and they respond, no, no, we're not spies. We're just, we're just 10 brothers here and there's one, uh, one missing and one is back home. And Yosef says, no, you are spies. Uh, we discussed that. It's the last thing we discussed actually for those who are with us that, you know, one way to read it is when they say one brother is missing that that's the accusation. No, you're here to find that brother. You're spying out the land to find that brother, which is the ultimate irony because it's exactly what they should be doing. In any event, initially Yosef takes them and puts them in jail for three days. And then he says, look, I'm a God-fearing person. I don't want to uh, withhold the food from your families, but I'll keep one of you as hostage. And Yosef takes the second oldest son, Shimon, as hostage. Uh, Let's just find that particular verse. That's in chapter um, 40, uh, 42. Chapter 42 of Breshit. Um, this is in verse number. Um, let's find this over here. 
Um, chapter 42. Where is this? Let's find that verse. Verse number 24. Chapter 42, verse 24. Um, it says, so Joseph takes Shimon uh, captive or hostage, one might say, and he instructs that the uh, vessels of the brothers be filled with, with, with food. But he also instructs to return the money. The money they had paid for the food is to be put back in their sacks in addition to give them a, uh, some kind of provision for the journey, which is done, and the brothers leave. So we're up to verse number 27 of chapter 42. Uh, before we get to verse 27, I just wanted to uh, mention, I believe we had mentioned this in the last, um, the, uh, last session as well, and that is why did he take Shimon hostage? What is what does Yosef take Shimon as hostage? So presumably it's not arbitrary. And um, we could suggest a couple of reasons for it, which are not contradictory reasons. But what is that in the sale of Joseph or the initially attempted murder of Joseph? It says there, one brother said to the other back in chapter 37, here comes the dreamer, let's throw him into the pit. And let's see what becomes of his dreams. We'll kill him. And let's see what becomes of his dreams. And Ruvain spoke up and said, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't kill him with our own hands, but throw him into the pit. And they intended to kill him. But Ruvain says, don't kill him. Throw him in the pit. And then his intention, says the Torah, was to save Joseph. So who is Ishawachim? Who is one brother said to the other? Um, it could be that there's no particular brother in mind. They're just talking to each other, Isha Achiv. But if we do have to single out the two brothers that are most likely to be the ones who are the ringleaders, then presumably it's brother number two and brother number three, because brother number one, Ruvain, actually wants to save Joseph. Throw him in the pit, thinking later on I'll come and I'll pull him out of the pit and bring him back to his father. So we know it's not Ruvain. And brother number four, Yehuda, is the one later who suggests that we sell him. That we is in between brother two and three, who are Shimon and Levi. And we know that Shimon and Levi have been already uh, engaged in a lot of bloodshed in chapter 34 in the story of Dina. So that's one reason that we can presume, and Shimon is older than Levi, not just older than Levi, but the very name Levi means the, accompany, the, the accompanist. So if we had a if the two of them, it's likely, it's the most plausible thing to say is if of the two of them, if one is a leader, it's probably Shimon, and then the accompanist, the accomplice to the crime would be Levi, that's his name. So that's one reason why Joseph might have taken Shimon hostage. Um, but in, in addition to that, separately from that, there's another good reason, I think even a better reason why Joseph takes Shimon. And that is because in the previous verses, the brothers are talking to each other. They don't know that Joseph understands them. Back in chapter 42, beginning in verse number um, 21. 
It says, Vayamu ish elochiv, avol ashemim anachnu alochinu. Asher ra'inu tzarat nafsho, bitchano elenu v'roshamanu. Aken bo elenu hatzara hazol. So the brothers, one said to the other, we are certainly guilty concerning our brother. We saw his suffering and his anguish. We paid no attention, but he cried out to us. We v'roshamanu. Shamanu means not to hear. We heard, but they paid no attention to the cry. The cry was irrelevant to them. Uh, therefore, therefore, they're saying this is why this terrible thing is happening to us. This fits very well if we assume, as I had suggested earlier, and it's found in the Medrash, and I think it could be a, a very good reading of the text, that what Joseph says, your spies, not spies, we're ten brothers. One is missing, one's back with the father. Yes, the missing brother. Your spies in the sense of searching for the missing brother. So if that be the case, we understand why they conclude that there's problems are because they didn't pay heed to the cry of Joseph when he was thrown and cast into the pit. But the next verse, Bayan Ruvain Otam Remar, Haromati Alechem Remar, Al Techatu Bayelet Vloshvatem, Begam Domohi Ne Nidras. So Ruvain speaks up. He says, I said to you, Remar, saying, Do not harm the boy. The child, and you did not listen. And behold, his blood is being sought. So Ruvain speaks up and says, Listen, I told you so. I told you not to do it. Now, before I just wanted to come back to this verse because I wanted to focus a little bit initially on Ruvain. The two main characters are Ruvain on one hand and Yehuda on the other, as we'll see, but they appear together in the sale of Joseph, and they appear together as the story will proceed. But Ruvain says, listen, you're, you're saying you're guilty for not, not, not hearing, not understanding, or accepting the cries of, of Joseph in the previous verse, but I say that in addition to that, you're guilty for not listening to me. I told you not to do it, and you paid no heed. You didn't accept what I told you. And behold, his blood is being sought. Just wanted to, so, so the first point is the obvious point. The next verse is, the next verse says, they didn't know, next verse, they didn't know that Joseph was understanding. Scroll down a verse. They didn't know that Joseph was understanding. Because the, the translator, the interpreter was between them. They assume he doesn't understand their language. They don't realize that Joseph understands. Shomea here doesn't mean to hear, it means to understand. Shomea has multiple meanings, but in any event, but Joseph's understanding what they're saying. So Joseph hears that Ruvain actually didn't intend to kill him. And Joseph didn't, didn't know that before. So therefore he takes Shimon, right? That's the next passage. So Joseph turned to them, he cries. He cries because he's hearing that it wasn't unanimous to kill him. Um, he comes back. So I wanted just to begin our study now with the following observation. You have four consecutive verses, four, which have the word Shama in it. The first is the brothers saying to each other, we are guilty, was when he cried out to us, when he begged us, lo shamanu was we paid it no heed. They heard it, obviously, they're saying they heard it. They heard his cries, 
but they paid no attention to the cries. That's the first verse. And the second verse is Shimon's, uh, Ruvain says, you're guilty because when I told you don't harm the boy, the, the child actually, Yeled, lo shibatem, you didn't listen. Next verse says, they did not know that Shomea Yosef, that Joseph understands. That's the third verse in a row with the word Shama. And the fourth verse is Vaikach me Shimon. So we have Shama in four consecutive verses. Now, what, what can we conclude from this is the question. So I have a couple of observations. First of all, the first obvious point is Joseph now hears that Ruvain, the oldest son, did not want to harm him, actually tried to save him. So he's not going to take the oldest one captive, which would make perfect sense. So he takes Shimon captive, who's the second oldest. That's on the plainest level. Um, now, in addition to that, and we also, I mentioned earlier that Shimon has a history. Shimon and Levi have a history of violence. Jacob later will condemn them very sharply for it. So we have to assume that Shimon and Levi were the ringleaders back in chapter 37. Now there's something else though. Then I'll come back to Ruvain. There's something else over here that his name is Shimon, which is very interesting. He's, he, his mother named him Shimon because she said, remember the, the mothers give the names of, the, of, the, of their children, not Jacob, but the mothers name their children. First one was Ruvain, God has seen my oppression, but the second was named Shimon, Shema Hashem Kisnua Anochi. God heard uh, that I was hated. That's what Leia says. And Vayiten Liyad said, and gave me this, uh, this, 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 this son. So I was thinking that actually, in addition to what I said till now, there's something else about Shimon. The man's name is Shimon because he's named, he's named Shimon because God heard that his mother was Sinuah, was hated. And what's interesting is when you think about the larger Joseph story, the Torah says in chapter 37 that Joseph was a talebearer. And more than that, his father, instead of reprimanding him, gives him a very special coat. But when the brothers saw that he, Joseph had a special coat, they hated him. They couldn't speak to him peaceably. And therefore, they're out to get him. So what I would say is, in addition to everything that we've said till now, all of which is good, is something else, which is the, the, the brother who should be most sympathetic to the one who was hated is, of course, Shimon, because that's his name. His name is God listens. God is uh, charitable towards God is compassionate towards the one who was hated. Joseph is called this by Yisnauoto. Joseph is the hated one. That's what the Torah said. So who more than Shimon should be the one to reach out to Joseph? So he's more guilty because we expect more from him, given his, given his mother's past and given his very name, given his very being. The names in the Torah are actually significant. They're not just accidental properties. In any event, Joseph takes Shimon. Now, there's something else I wanted to begin with, which is Ruvain. So Ruvain is found in the second verse of these four verses, the four, the four Shama verses, if we can call them. But the second one, Vayan Ruvain Otam Reymar. Haro Amarti Alechem Reymar. Al Techetu Bayeled Veloshimatem. Vigam Domo Hinei Nidrash. You see the, the art of the, of, the, of, the, of the Torah here. First of all, 
Ruvain speaks up. The fact of the matter is, they are all in trouble. All the brothers are in trouble. They presume it's because of the sale of Joseph. They connected to that. Then Ruvain speaks up in this verse and says, listen, I told you, three times in this verse, strange enough, the word to speak, to say. So the emphasis is, I told you, I told you, I told you. Now, there are two points over here. First of all, it's irrelevant. Okay, you told us, we didn't do it. We're in the present situation. What is the difference if you told us or not? How does that change anything? It, it changes nothing. What it does is it's a self-indication. I'm not guilty. It's your fault. It's not my fault, etc. That's number one. So there's no point to it. The Torah emphasizes with the word lemar. He's doing a lot of talking, but the talking is irrelevant, actually. That's number one. Number two, what he claims to have said, interesting is the word lemar. We have in the Chumash many, many times, Vayidaber Hashem El Moshe Leymar. So some interpret that Leymar means God spoke to Moshe to, to, to tell the people. The problem with that interpretation is that sometimes it works, but there are many cases in the Torah where it, it doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, so Leymar here certainly doesn't mean to tell anybody, but Leymar often means to say something very specific, as if he, the emphasis, I told you, and I quote, or something like that, that's what Ray Marwood means. He's being very specific. I told you exactly what you should, what you should do. I told you exactly, and of course, you didn't listen. <clears throat> listen to me. There's a self-centered element over here. Remember when Ruben came back from the pit. Says Ruben, the boy is missing, child is missing, as for me, where shall I go? He's thinking about his own position in the family, his father, etc. So there's a self-centeredness to Ruvain. But on top of all that, there's something else which is very striking here. And that is, I told you, remember exactly what I said? Don't harm the child. But Ruvain in the Chumash did not say that. <clears throat> not the text we have. He said something very different to the brothers. He said, don't kill him with your own hands. Don't slit his throat. Throw him in the pit. Now, if they throw him in the pit, now he's, and he's thinking to himself, you know, when no one's looking, I'll pull him out of the pit and bring him back to his father. His intention was certainly good. But that's not what he told the brothers. What he told the brothers is, don't kill him with your own hands. You can kill him a different way. Because the, being thrown into the pit is going to kill him. You're in a desert and there's no water. So you're not going to last very long. You won't die immediately. It may take two or three days. But you're going to die in that pit. And frankly, one can make the argument that it's the worst kind of death. But he certainly did not say, So we have him self-positioning, but claiming, claiming that he said something, which he was thinking. He was certainly thinking, uh, don't harm the boy, because it says he wants to save him. He wants to bring him back to his father. But he never said it. So the, it's a wonderful puzzle over here because it really gives you a sense of a, a, a sense about Ruvain. His intentions were certainly good. He really wants to save him. 
No one else wants to save Joseph. So, I mean, Yehuda wants to save him by selling him later. Not that the brothers did sell him, of course, as we studied the simple reading of the Torahs, they never actually sold him. Somebody else sells him in the interim. But the only one about whom it says he wants to save Joseph's life and bring him back home safe is Reuben. But that's not what he told the brothers. He makes a, a, a distinction between killing with your own hands and, and causing death. Now, that is a problematic distinction from a moral perspective. It's a very interesting question. Is there a difference between killing somebody with your own hands or, da or damaging someone with your own hands or causing damage? In the halacha, there are distinctions that are drawn. The question is, what kind of moral distinction, if any, is there? But in this particular case, he simply reports to them, reminds them what he said, but he actually never said it. So these, it's a self-serving statement and it has no place here. So Ruben is problematic and this really picks up Ruben. Good intentions, he only wants to save, but kind of self-promotion and the kind of not taking responsibility. It's a way of saying, this is the most important point, I told you not to do it is a way of saying, you know, I'm not responsible because it's not my fault. But I think one of the points of this Joseph narrative in general is they're all responsible because they're all brothers. They were all in it together. Apart from the fact that he said throw him into the pit from which in fact he was taken and sold. But apart from that, there's no such thing as I'm not responsible. Everybody is responsible. So that's the problematic side of Ruben. Okay, let me stop here for a moment if there are any comments or questions. This is, anybody has something to say, speak up or send a chat, yes. Uh, David, I wanted to say that it possibly there's a way to look at Shimon the other way, that he could feel that it's happening all over again. That just like his mother wasn't the loved one, his, you know, Rachel was. So once again, he's not the loved one. Rachel's son is, and she's being, he's being picked at, you know, favored with the Ketonet Pasim. It picks up on exactly the same point. And he feels once again, pushed aside and not correctly, just like his mother was that put her in that position. That the same reason that he got his name is exactly, it's, you know, deja vu all over again. And, and that's why he's so adamant. Like the flip side of what you're saying. Right, not that it would being, get him. But he's not being singled out. <laughs> Joseph, Joseph slanders everybody or Joseph reports back on everybody. There's no sense that Ruben, that Shimon's being singled out in the story. If anything, possibly it says Joseph was hanging with B'nai Zilpah and B'nai Billa, whatever that means. Does it mean he's reporting on them or he's hearing from them about the others? But there's no sense in the story that Shimon is singled out in any way whatsoever. So I, you know. No, but he might, he, from his perspective, he might feel it much more strongly than the others. Okay, right. Having so you're, raising, that name. You're, you're raising a different, very important question. A really important question. And I'll tell you what the question you're raising is, which is this. <laughs> okay. Well, to everybody, I know we point is the following. People suffer in life. You know, there's a movie we showed at Drisha many years ago. Uh, I'm Tishabov. I, I picked the movie out, The uh, Pawnbroker. I like that movie very, very much. Rod Steiger, it's an excellent movie. And the issue of The Pawnbroker, it, it actually is a very, it's based on a book, which is a very Jewish book. In the book, the book, 
that the pawnbroker is based on, it takes place on Shivasa Batamus, believe it or not. Shivasa Batamus. And the point of the pawnbroker is there's this Jew who's escaped from, I mean, survived Europe with a lot of loss of family and everything. He remembers the past. And he's in a in the inner city. And the question is, how do you behave when you're in the inner city? And this fellow, who's very angry, basically is has no pity on the people around him. And that's the core idea, that the suffering has actually hardened him and made him a very uncaring person. That, that's how the story begins. It's a very interesting story. And I think the message of that movie is very important because the Chumash has exactly the opposite view. Exactly what you're saying is precisely 180 degrees opposite of what the Torah says. Because what the Torah says is, I'm going to send you down to Mitzrayim. And the purpose of going to Egypt in the Chumash is that you have on this, of course, it's exactly the opposite of what you're saying. The whole purpose is of people suffering is to learn from the suffering. Now, what the movie raises, and the reason I chose that movie, is a very simple point. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it's exactly the opposite, that people who have suffered have great, great anger and they're gonna take it out on the people who are around them. That's life, that's what happens often in life. But I think the Torah is suggesting, more than suggesting, that's not the way it should be, that those who suffer should have compassion and be able to put themselves in the shoes of other people that are suffering. And that's a great challenge because it's not simple. And that's, I think, Tishabov, I thought was a very a good choice. I was very pleased with that choice. In any event, um, so yes, I would say, I understand psychologically what you're saying may, may be true, 100% true. But I think from the Chumash's standpoint, as I understand it, the Chumash has exactly the opposite idea, that if the one, the one who was in that position should be the one to um, be most sympathetic to someone else who's in that same position, which is to be, in case of Joseph, he's called, uh, by, by Yisnu, he's, he's the hated one. So. Okay, anybody else have a comment to uh, our observation? If not, we'll continue. I think Wendy does. Please, yes. Okay, it's Wendy Baker. Uh, yes, Wendy. Yeah, the, um, if you look at the situation Ruvain was in, at the time he spoke to his brothers about putting him in the pit, had he yes. suggested what he was thinking, I'm gonna come back, it wouldn't have worked. They wouldn't have put him in the pit. Uh, this was, he, he, he couldn't say that. He would think, you know, they'll think he'll die in the pit. And he might have right. thought, you know, that he said it. But he thought it. And, you know, he said what he thought and he thought what he said. But that he was clever at the time when he made the comment to put him in the pit, to not say, you know, we could save him later, or maybe we'll change our minds. Well, you know something, you raise a very interesting question, actually, and, and uh, very interesting question. You know, the Rashi in chapter 38, <clears throat> quotes a Medrash, the, the, the story of Judah and Tamar, says at that time, Judah went down from his, bro from his brothers. Judah's the one who says, let's sell him. 
Now, whether they actually themselves sold them or not, that's a good question. I don't think so, but, but he, he suggests selling it. And Rashi quotes a medrash, Judah went down from the brothers, says Rashi. The brothers said to Judah, you know, you're the one that said to sell him. If you had stood up and said, you don't sell your brother, it's wrong, we would have listened to you, and this would never have happened. So we sort of blame you. And that is a very interesting statement because, you know, it's a good question. I mean, some people are able to have leadership qualities. They stand up and they say, listen, what Ruven might have said, but he wouldn't be Ruven if he said this. He might have said, look, you can't stand the kid. I can't either. No one likes him. He's a real jerk. On the other hand, he gives our brother. And beyond that, he's our father's favorite. Think of what, of what it might do to our father, Yaakov. We don't hate him. <clears throat> we have our issues with him. We don't hate him. So, again, if he had said that, would they have listened? But the point is that it takes a certain kind of person to stand up and say, we're not doing it. And very often, someone who has the guts to do that, people do listen. But when Ruben says, you know, let's not kill him with our own hands, but let's throw him into the pit where he'll die. Now he intends to save them. But that's not what he says. He makes this distinction. And Yehuda doesn't make that distinction. Later on, when Yehuda is eating their meal and Joseph's in the pit, Yehuda says, why should we kill our brother? He calls it as it is. He's going to die in the pit. Let's sell him. And we'll make a little profit on the side. So again, he didn't say it's wrong. But he says it is wrong to kill. He does say that much. He didn't say it's not wrong to sell your brother into captivity. That he doesn't say. So again, it's a good question as to whether... It's a leadership question. You know, do you speak up and say what you think? Or do you try to size up the audience and say, you know, if I go that far, I won't be able to convince them. That's a, a very big question. And the different different kinds of people are different leadership, the different leadership models. Moshe Rabbeinu would not have said, throw him into the pit and think to take him out later. Moshe would have said what he said, the golden calf, it's wrong. And we're not doing it. And he said that in the face of the fact that virtually everybody, as you, we could see, would be opposed to him. And his brother Aaron says, what do you want? Well, what can I do? You know the way the people are. So Moshe says, I don't care the way they are. That's not, we do the right thing. So it's a good question. I mean, you raise a very, I think, a very critical question in general. But um, in any event, this is what Ruvain did do. And his throwing him into the pit, on one hand, may have saved his life. <clears throat> on the other hand, it, it allowed him to be to be sold because they, someone, someone else picked him up out of that pit. When Reuben hears they want to sell him, he goes back to the pit to pull him out, but it's too late. He's gone. Does anybody and their, else want to come? And, yes. their, and their society was broken down and dissolved. Uh, and I hate to bring back the pawnbroker, but he thought he'd stay isolated and survive. But that what he trusted the boy, but the rest of it, forget it. And then you said the anger of layers came out. Same with these brothers, uh, deterioration of society. That was their society. True, okay, that's true. That's what happens is basically this is precipitates exile. The story of Joseph is about going into exile. It's a, you know, it's a fantastic story actually, very unusual story, but this is what precipitates the exile. And the Chumash makes it clear from the very beginning when Yaakov says to Yosef, your brothers are in Shechem, I'd like you to go see them. And Joseph's response is Hineni. And Hineni is one of those words that's a critical word in the Chumash. 
And it means the Torah is giving us a signal that the story of Joseph in Egypt is the beginning of the Jewish people going into exile. There's no question about it, which is precipitated by brothers, in this case, brothers not being able to uh, figure out a way to live together. That's what it comes down to. Okay, this is Reuven now. So this is Reuven. So meanwhile, now let's pick up our story. And um, fine. so the brothers now go home. The brothers go home. Joseph sends them home with a lot of provisions, with food. He even gives them food for the journey. But in addition to that, he puts the, he returns their money. He returns their money. And this is a very good question. Why does Joseph <coughs> return their money? <coughs> so I wanted to start with that. <coughs> and um, this is found in, let's start with this 27th Pasuk of chapter 42, verse 27. Talked, so they're traveling back. They, they're traveling back. They take their food with them in verse 27, chapter 42, verse 27. One of them opened up his sack, one of them. says, is interesting. The one opened up his sack. Rashi says it's Levi. It's the one who's now alone, because Shimon and Levi are a pair. In any event, one opened his sack to feed his animals in the, in the, in the inn. Vayarek Kaspo. When he sees that his money is inside his sack. It's right there the, the, at the opening of the sack, the mouth of the sack, he finds his money. What is this? He says to the brothers, the money's been returned to me. It's in the top of my sack. That the heart went out. And one said, one, one said to the other, what has God done to us? They understand this is a problem because it appears that they took the food without paying for it. That's a big problem. And they have one brother who's, who's in captivity. What I wanted to underscore over here is one little word in verse number 27, critical word. And the word is the last word of the verse, which is Lanu. What has God done to us? The brothers did not say to this, whoever this brother is, to the one of them, what did you do? Or what has God done to you? But they say, what has God done to us? This is an incredibly important verse because there is a sense in this verse that the brothers feel a kind of corporate responsibility. What is God? Now, remember, no one at this point, for whatever reason, if I were a brother, I would check my own sack. They don't. They don't check their sacks. They assume it's only this particular brother, unnamed, but they're saying that what has God done to us, plural. Maybe that's the reason that the name of the brother is not even given. It doesn't matter which brother it is. It's one of them. If it's one of them, it's all of them. And I would... Um, I would, I would just emphasize over here or remind ourselves that in a similar situation, which we'll repeat later, because remember the, the money being placed back in their sacks and later the magical goblet of Joseph being placed in Binyamin's sack, it's going to appear later in the story. So they're leaving Egypt and they find something in their sack, which shouldn't be there. 
Now, the parallel story earlier we had in the book of Breshit is when Yaakov runs away from Lavan, back in chapter 31, and he doesn't know that Rachel has stolen her father's truffin. So Lavan chases after him and says, why did you steal away from me? Why didn't you stay? I would have thrown you a party, you know. And then he says, and by the way, you're going back home to your father and your father's God. Why do you steal my, why do you steal my gods? And Jacob's response to the question, why did you steal my gods? He doesn't know anybody took the, took the truck for him. He, he doesn't know. But Yaakov says, whoever took them should die. That's Yaakov's response. And in other words, what Yaakov is saying is, not, it's, it's not my fault. I know nothing about it. Person that took it is guilty. I'm not guilty. But one could have had a different response out of Yaakov. One might have expected the following response. Whoever took it is guilty, but I also bear responsibility. After all, I am the head of the family. So therefore, I'm responsible. And in point of fact, Yaakov saying whoever took it should die, Rachel Wade does die, um, is very problematic, even, even in, in, because it's, it's about not taking responsibility, which he doesn't do for Rachel. Not in that story, and not earlier when Rachel says, Give me children or else I'll die. And he has a very unsympathetic answer to Rachel. I have children. It's your problem. What do you want from me? Which is not what we expect that, um, from Jacob, given the fact he's, we're told he loves Rachel. He might have spoken to her in a different way. He doesn't. Nor does he take responsibility. But here you'll see the brothers taking a kind of corporate responsibility. This is very important because you want to build this bayit. You want to build this family. And for the Chumash, it's really important that they take responsibility for each other. Now, that will include Joseph and will include Joseph's proxy Benjamin, which is one of the critical pieces of the story. But already over here, you do have a sense that they have they an understanding that if one is guilty, then we all, we all are in fact somehow responsible. And that's a very important verse. Okay, so, um, so let's continue now. So now they, now they go back home. Now they're going back home. Let's keep, let's scroll down and read more. Scroll down. Rabbi, can I ask a question? Yeah. But he didn't explain why you think Yosef did it. Why do you think Yosef put the money back? Uh, we'll deal with that later on. That's a, that's a central question of the story. What does Joseph do? Whatever he does, Joseph is. It's one of those stories. I mean, I will. Obviously, we have to talk about that. Um, I'll, I'll get to it. It's a central question to the story. Why does Joseph put the money back over here? Why does Joseph put the gavia uh, in the sack of Benjamin later on? Why does Joseph accuse the brothers of being uh, spies, etc.? I will deal with that. That is. One of, if not, that's one of so the, the central questions of the story. Uh, the argument that Sternberg made in his book on biblical narrative is that this is a case where you can't actually know. He makes the claim that the Joseph story has uh, more than one incident where it's actually impossible to know, and one can argue one way or the other way, and you can't actually know. And I think there is some truth to that, but I think. It, I think in my view, which I'll put out there, is has to be somewhat refined. 
I don't think the Joseph story is a story where clearly Joseph has a plan, you know? So the question is, what is the plan? Why is he doing this? That's a very important question. We'll deal with it. There's only one place in the Bible where we have an extended story where at every turn, you actually can read it more than one way. Only one such story in the Bible. You can truly read the entire book one way or another way. And they're both readings are perfectly valid. And I would say each reading is as valid as the other. And that, of course, is Megillah Esther. Megillah Esther is, the only, is an amazing book, unique in that respect. You can read it one way and you can read it another way. They're both good. And it's based on the Joseph story to some extent, but it differs in, in other respects. But I will get back to that question. So that is a clearly, we can't leave the Joseph story without wrestling with that question. Why does Joseph put the money back in the sacks? Very wonderful question. We'll get, we'll get to it. Okay. Now they're telling their father what happened. So, and the person, the lord of the land, they call him, uh, he spoke to us harshly. He accused us. He said, no, we are honest. That's a word that appears several times in the Joseph story, many times. Let's park that for the moment, but keep it in the back of our minds. We said no. You got to scroll down. We're twelve brothers. One is missing, and one is back with his father, back in the land of Canaan. Scroll down. Scroll. Yeah, keep scroll down. Right. Next verse. Scroll down. All right. So, so he said, we'll stop. So he said, um, no, you scroll too far down. One, one verse up. Right, stop. He said to us, okay, this is, I'm going to test if you're telling the truth or not. Take your food back and uh, leave one of the brothers with me here. So you bring that brother you claim is back home. No, no, you're speaking the truth. Right? If you do that, I'll, re I'll return your brother to you. And you will free, be free to move about the land. Now, actually, when they report back to Jacob, uh, they they have a couple of embellishments over here. In particular, the last part of the last verse, I will give your brother to you, which they translate as, you will be free to move about in the land. Now, Joseph never actually used those words. He said nothing about moving about the land. The actually is very interesting. That's a phrase that is lifted from the Dina story. That's a phrase when they say to Jacob's sons, let's marry Dina, and you'll be able to do business with us, right? So we'll park that for the moment. But they're repeating to their father what essentially what Joseph said. They leave out some details. They don't mention they were put in prison for three days first. Now it says, last verse, 
They're emptying their sacks, and lo and behold, in each one's sack was a money bag. When they saw this, and their father saw this, they were, by Yiro, they were frightened. Here they translate dismayed. No, by Yiro, they were scared. What is this business? Now Jacob speaks up. You have caused me to be bereft. Yosef Nenu Joseph is missing and Shimon is missing. And you would and you would take Benjamin. These things happened to me. So let's stop here for a moment and let's now reflect on the question of why did Joseph do this? Well, the question why is one question. Let's park that for a second. But what is the effect of, of sending back the money? The effect of sending back the money is the following. First of all, what, do you t- what does one think? Say you're Jacob. What does Jacob think? The brothers return home with a lot of food. And they, and they also return home with all their money. But not all the brothers are there. Shimon is missing. So what do you think? What might run through your head? Now, in a normal family, this might not run through your head. But this is not a normal family. What Jacob might be thinking is that the brothers had a good deal and they decided to sell their brother for a lot of money. Now, we have to remember that Shimon is without question the least favorite son of Jacob. That's for sure. Because Jacob had a rather... uh, rough interaction or conversation with Shimon at the end of the Dina story. He says, you have sold me, Shimon and Levi, but Levi's the accompanier, Shimon's older. Later on in, in the blessings, when he blesses his children, Shimon and Levi are singled out. Your dwelling places or Becheroteum are places of violence or wickedness. And I will divide you. I don't want to be part of you. Those are very harsh words. So Shimon is the least loved. There's no question about that. And now the brothers, maybe they saw an opportunity. Now, the point is, Yosef Einenu Vishimon Einenu, there you see that what Jacob, somewhere in the back of his head, you know, might be, might be thinking, we don't know for sure, that the same way that the brothers come back without Shimon and a lot of dough, uh, maybe a similar thing happened to Joseph. The brothers were intending to sell Joseph for money. And according to some of the commentaries, in fact, did sell him for money. I don't think that's the plain reading of the Chumash. It doesn't matter whether they actually sold him or not. They had intended to. So the point is, when Joseph sends the money back, okay, this will cause, certainly, Yaakov to start to wonder both about Shimon and also about Joseph and it will actually present a test for Jacob. Now, I'm not saying this is Joseph's intention. It might be. But the test for Jacob is going to be what he actually says in this verse. Yosef is missing. Shimon is missing. And now you would take Benjamin? Why is these things happening to me? In other words, sending Binyamin now, his remaining favorite son of his wife, Rachel, to redeem Shimon, to redeem Shimon, the least favorite, if in fact the story is true. 
there's no evidence that Yaakov believes their story. Right? The last time they told them the story, it wasn't true. We found this cult. Do you recognize it? I mean, they didn't say outright anything, but it's a lie. Maybe the worst kind of lie. The intimation. So we don't know what Yaakov actually thinks. And I think there's evidence in the text that he doesn't, he's not sure whether they're telling the truth altogether. Because later on, when the food runs out, he says to his sons, go and get more food. I mean, go and get more food. And then they, Yehuda says, how can we get more food? We told you, we can't go back there unless we bring our brother. The guy won't see us. So why did he say it in the first place? And I would suggest he's not so sure about the story. What he is sure about, they got a lot of money and brothers missing. And the previous son disappeared under, under certain circumstances. Yaakov knows that he's hated. Yaakov sent Joseph to make peace. Yaakov tried to be a peacemaker. So somewhere on the back of his head, it's certainly possible. Chumash doesn't say, but it's certainly very possible that Yaakov suspects. It's funny that the Torah ever, never actually tells us what Yaakov thinks about the Joseph story. It doesn't fully tell us, but there's certainly are intimations and it's perfectly logical that he would have some doubts. And here you see it. So what, what Joseph has done effectively is is now set up a test a test for Jacob. The point is, let me just get, since the question was raised a few minutes ago, I just wanted to make the following point, which is a separate question from Joseph's motivation. There are two questions. What is Joseph's motivation? And the second question is, uh, what is happening in the story? So let's leave why Joseph does it out of the question for a moment. And let me make the following observation about the Joseph narrative, which is the most important thing I'm going to say about the whole Joseph story, which is this. Jacob had a dream to build his bayit. It means his family. It means everybody's got to be included. The problem is that there are a lot of tensions within the family. And I'll mention several of them. One issue is the brother's relationship to Joseph. That's one issue. Then we got another issue. Joseph's relationship to his brothers. We know when he has an opportunity to get back at them, he certainly has taken advantage of that. In any event, we totally understand it. They try to kill him, you know? Normally when someone tries to kill you, you're not very forgiving. I mean, yes, maybe Mike Pence is, but any normal person, someone tries to kill you, you're not gonna be supportive of that person. Um, that's, that's one problem. That's the brothers vis-a-vis -vis Joseph and Joseph vis-a-vis -vis the brothers. Those are two separate things. Then we have another issue. The brothers vis-a-vis -vis their father. We know that Reuven slept with his father's wife. That's a hostile act. We know that Shimon and Levi condemn their father. And we know Jacob condemns them. So now we have two more problems, which is Jacob's relationship to his sons and his son's relationship to Jacob. Those are two separate so now we have four issues in this bayit. And on top of all that, we have another question, which is Joseph's relationship to his father and the father's relationship to Joseph. That's another question because, okay, Jacob, Joseph talks fondly of his father. In point of fact, I'm not suggesting that Jacob thinks that, that Joseph thinks Joseph set him up. 
Some, some people have suggested that. I think that's not true. Joseph does not suggest that Yaakov intentionally sets Joseph up, but de facto he did. De facto, he put him in a dangerous situation and Joseph was sold. So de facto, he did that. And then Joseph may have questions about the way, the way Benjamin's being treated. Go down to Egypt and all the brothers are there except for Benjamin. What, what's that about? Is Benjamin still alive? Maybe they killed him too. Is Jacob overprotective of Benjamin? Favoring Benjamin? That didn't do well for, that did not do well for, 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 for Joseph. And then we have the other question that will emerge later, Yaakov's relationship to Joseph. He certainly loves Joseph. But when he comes down to Egypt, he sees an Egyptian viceroy with his chariot and with his Egyptian dress and Egyptian children and the priest of Egypt as the father-in-law and the Egyptian woman as the, as the wife. So that's another question. So in other words, you want to build a family. And then on top of that, there's something else, which is what about Rachel? What's her place in the family? She died on the way. Can we include Rachel? She died having stolen Trophim. So these are the issues in the story. This is the question. If you want to build the house, the family, you've got to somehow reconcile all of these different things that are going on. I mentioned seven different things going on. That's the core issue. Now, we have to make the following uh, distinction. So de facto, when Yosef sends the money back, for example, what that now sets up is a test. It sets up a test for, for Yaakov. Is Yaakov going to be willing to risk his favorite child, Rachel's only remaining son, in order to help the family, in order to free his least favorite son? Is he willing to do that or not? There's an element of danger, of risk, etc., on many levels. In fact, Jacob is being tested. But Jacob, if you want to build a family, everybody's included, you got to take that risk. But will he be able to do it? So certainly that's what's happening in the story. Now, there's a separate question. Was that Joseph's motive or not? Or maybe Joseph's motive could even be to send a message to his father, you know, these are people who for money will do virtually anything. Who knows? We can't really tell what Joseph's motive is. But we do know de facto what, um, what's happening in terms of a test. Now, there's another possibility. Why does he return the money? That was the question. I'll tell you why he returns the money. I'm going to take money from my brother. My brother needs food. He calls me up. David, I, need some, I have no food. Can you give me some food? What am I going to say? I'll give you some food. It'll cost you $400. What? It's my brother. Of course you could have food. What's the question? That's another way to read it. It's not going to charge the brothers for food. It's a completely different reading. So here the point is, here's where this question of, 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 of ambiguity comes in. Here's where the argument is, which is not a bad argument, I think. You can read it both ways. And you really can't tell. And let me just explain why you can't tell. And here's where I, I think, differ from Sternberg. I think in this particular case, you can't tell because what the Chumash has done is presented Joseph in two different ways. We've already seen this. On one hand, he's the viceroy of Egypt. He speaks harshly to them. He imprisons them all. Then he takes one of them hostage, etc. That's one side of Joseph. 
But then there's another side of Joseph. When Joseph hears the brothers saying to each other, we're being punished because we mistreated our brother. He cried out to us for help and we didn't help him. They don't know Joseph as Joseph. He understands what they're saying. And Joseph turns aside and cries. And suddenly there's another side to Joseph. So the Joseph who said in, back in chapter 37, when the man meets him and says, what are you looking for? I'm searching for my brothers. That's a different picture of this fellow. He actually wants to connect to his brothers, but it's hard to connect to somebody who intends to kill you. But there's the Joseph, he cries several times. So the Chumash itself presents Joseph as this complex character. On one hand, he's the Egyptian, he's the viceroy, etc. He remembers those dreams, he remembers the past. And there's the other side of Joseph, which is he's, he wants to connect to his brothers. When he hears that some of them regret what happened, he cries. When he sees Benjamin, he cries. When Judah speaks, he cries. When the brother comes at the end of the book, he cries. So my point is that the Chumash itself has set up Joseph as this complex character. And that's the reason I think it's very hard to know why he does what he does. Because which Joseph are we talking about? The Joseph who cries when he hears something about the brothers, who seeks his brothers out? That's one Joseph. Then there's the Joseph who's the Egyptian, who's, who's made a new life for himself, who says, I want to forget my past. And maybe, and we'll get to this later, who sees his brothers as a potential problem, which they will be a problem, not because they want to be a problem, but because when brothers come down to Egypt, Paro's not going to like it, because that suggests that Joseph could be establishing his own little base of support. And that's the last thing in the world that Paro or any Paro wants. So the, the answer to the question, why does he do what he does? I, we'll come back to this later on as well, but I would say we don't know. And there are two very different possibilities, both which reflect the peace of Joseph. But what we can say for sure, because whatever his motive is, his, um, in effect, he has set up a test. And the test is for Yaakov. Will Yaakov be willing to allow his beloved son to go to Egypt? Remember, initially he didn't send him. Lest Less Miss Pena Karen and Wasson. He didn't send them initially, he kept them home. So will he be willing to do it or not? This is the, this is the question. Okay, so now let's continue. So fine. So now they come home and the, let's get back to the text there. Um, yes, where's, where's the text? Um, right, so let's start a second. Fine. Uh, fine. Fine. Next verse. Now we have Ruben speaking up. Once again, the Lamar. It's a big talker. Ruvain said to his father, saying, You can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back. Give him to me, and I promise to return him to you. In other words, the point being, you say you've lost two sons. Uh, or you so Shimon or yes, Yosef, it's not clear who the two are. Could be Yosef and maybe potentially Binyamin. If you lose Yosef and Binyamin, then I will, you can kill my two sons in, in return for this. Give him to me and I'll return him. I take responsibility. Now, let's just think a moment about this offer that Ruben makes, which of course, 
from on one level, it's completely absurd. Why would Yaakov want to kill his grandchildren? The Yaakov's grandchildren. So it makes zero sense. What Ruvain seems to be saying is, if you lose to, because remember, Ruvain sees himself, Ruvain's intention is saving Joseph. The Torah never said Ruvain said he's our brother. It doesn't say that. It said his intention was to return him to his father. Ruvain, who's the oldest son, sees himself as a kind of father figure or parallel to Jacob. He does sleep with one of his father's wives. So the point is, father, if you lose two kids, then you could take two of my kids as well. That's now he doesn't really, of course, it's expect that to happen. He said, but even the, the phrasing it in this way is highly problematic. And Yaakov, of course, rejects it. But I would point out something else about this statement of Ruvain. You can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back. So for the student of the book of Breshit, it recalls for us another person who said pretty much the same thing. And the one I'm referring to is a kind of, I would say the two of them are very similar. And the character I'm referring to is Lot back in chapter 19. When the people of, when the angels come to town, God's messengers come to town to check out the town to see if they're worthy of, of survival or they're going to be destroyed. So all the people surround his, the house and say, give us those, these two strangers, these two men who entered your house to who know them. It means sexual abuse. And you Lot, when the house is surrounded, says, no, please don't harm my guests. They come on them and protection of my rules. I have two unmarried daughters. Do whatever you want to them. Don't harm these people came under my roof. So you read that, you say to yourself, I mean, it's very perverse, but apart from the perversity of it, there's something else. You want to be a hero? Say, take me instead. I'm not saying you should say that, but that would be more logical. We mean take my daughters. So what you have over here is a failure of responsibility. And you have exactly the same thing with Ruvain, with the loaded to the two daughters. And with Ruvain, it's his two sons. Lot is not a leader. Lot's not a leader. Doesn't take personal responsibility. And the point of fact, he has absolutely no influence in the town. He's been there for a while. He sits by the gate. And the entire town, from young to old, surrounds the house. He's a person with zero influence because he doesn't take any, any, any risk, any responsibility. So, of course, and Ruvain is similar. He's the first one to speak up. No, Father, I'll take responsibility. But the form that it takes, the Shnei Tamid, is completely inappropriate. And Yaakov says, no. Ayomer, lo b'ni mochem. mate. His brother's dead. And he's left alone. He's the only one I have left. Something bad will happen to him. So here in this verse, we completely understand what he's saying, but I just want to repeat what I said before, and I'll take comments or questions before we proceed. And that is, he may be the only one left for Rachel, but you do have 12 sons. Okay, one of them is missing, a nano. But what about all the others? What are they, chopped liver? I mean, the, the, the very... I mean, I, we understand it from one stand, from one perspective, but it's actually from a different perspective. That is, of the one who says, I'm going to build the buy it, everybody's included. This actually points out 
the problem. The, the biggest problem in Jacob's dream, fulfilling the dream, is the way the house has been constructed. The house was constructed out of competition. Two wives, four wives, struggle between wives, etc. And that is the problem. Somehow we have to find a way. Yaakov has to find a way that everybody feels equally included. Doesn't mean they're all equal, but everybody's got to be equally included. And when Yaakov says, I only have one left, but among other things, he's got another son. If Yaakov believes it, he's got another son in Egypt. I mean, what about Shimon? If Yaakov follows through on this, Shimon remains a captive for his entire life. He's your son. Like him, don't like him. He's still your son. Son number two. So the fact is, it points out over here the very, very difficult situation in which Yaakov finds himself. He's stuck. And who's going to get him out of it? Ruvain can't. Because Ruvain doesn't have the ability to get him out of it. So it's got to be somebody else who's going to get him out of it. And there's somebody else who's going to be the counterpart to Ruvain in the sale of Joseph. That's going to be Yehuda. But what's going to give Yehuda the tools to get Yaakov to send Binyamin to Mitzrayim and take a risk is, his, he, is the lessons he learned from his, from his Rebbe. He, have a, he is very fortunate to have a Rebbe. Everybody needs a Rebbe. So he has a Rebbe, great Rebbe, great teacher of Sefer Bereshit, whoever she is. Tamar is her name. We have no idea where she's coming from, but she taught Yehuda something about responsibility and about confession. And that's what Yehuda's going to put into play in the story, as we'll see. But it's, someone's got to do it. Yaakov left to his own devices will do nothing. That's clear. He says, I'm not I, my, my only son. The other one, the brother's dead. Something bad will happen to him on the road. So he is, um, he's stuck. Okay, now let's, let's continue now. We'll start chapter 43. Um, yeah, we got about 10 minutes or so. Okay, let's start chapter 43. Next verse. Um, Haraav kaved ba'aretz. Three, three words in the verse. The fam, remember, there's a famine, and they went down initially to get food, and the famine's only getting worse. And remember, Joseph, the famine is not just in Egypt. The famine is in all the lands surrounding Egypt. All the food has run out now. I mentioned this before. Jacob says, go back and bring food. The word for food in the Joseph narrative is typically shever. Shever or bar. Shivru Go back and get some food. It's a strange thing to say. It's, they've made the point before, we can't go back without Benjamin. So maybe he doesn't believe them. Maybe he thinks the story is not true. Maybe he thinks they got, going down to Egypt, they got a good deal on Shimon, and they made up the story. Now Judah speaks up. He quotes, well, the Lemar of Judah is not what he's saying. The Lemar, I quote, it's the Lemar, I quote, but it's not what he's saying. He's quoting somebody else. He says the, the person, the Ish, that's what they call Joseph, the one we dealt with, the person, he's made it very clear. Don't come back without your brother. When 
If you send, says Judah to his father, in no uncertain terms, you send that brother, we'll get food for you. But if you don't send him, we're not going down there because there's no point. Because Kiyoish, keep scroll down, scroll down. Right. If right. That's, that's what the guy said. Now we have Jacob's response. This is so real. Says Jacob, why did you tell him you have a brother? This happens all the time, you know. <laughs> it's irrelevant, of course, why you told him. So now they all respond, not Judah. Vayomu, they said, all the brothers are screaming because he asked us. He asked about our family. It's not exactly true. Is your father still alive? Do you have a brother? And we told them, we answered his questions. What do you mean, why we tell him? He asked us questions that we have. It's not actually true that he asked them that question. They volunteered it, but it doesn't matter. The point I think here is. The entire conversation is not relevant. It doesn't matter why they told them, because all that matters is the, the, the reality of the situation. So they're all screaming and yelling, and Jacob screaming at them. It happens all the time. And now Judah speaks up. Critical verse. Send the boy with me, and we'll go. We'll live. We won't die. You and us and our children. He throws in the children. He says, Father, let me just remind you something over here. I know you're very, Jacob is very, in this, I must say, he's very self-absorbed in the story. These things happen to me. It's all to me. And Judah says, Father, I'm sympathetic to you. Let me remind you, my beloved father, we have a bunch of little children too. So yes, we'll all live. It's not just about you. It's a, very, it's, a, it's a rebuke to Jacob in a sweet way, but it's a rebuke. We all have to live. Not just you, my beloved father, but the little, little babies, they also have to live. So send the boy with me and I will send, send them with me. I guarantee it. You can take, I, you seek him from me, from my hand. We'll come back to this speech next time, but of course, just for now, and there's more to it. I'll be the, I, I, I will pledge it. That was the Tamar story. He takes the Eravon. I pledge it. I'm personally responsible. Not you kill my two children. Me. You come back to me, I'm responsible. And if I don't bring him back, I'll be I'll be I'll be considered a sinner all of my days. So it's the deeper sense of personal responsibility. That is the great speech of Yehuda. Before I stop here, I wanted to make one uh, observation. We'll pick up with this next time. This is a critical, a critical conversation. And I want to make one point about this critical conversation, which we'll continue with next time, which is the following. The larger Joseph narrative is the foundational story. It's not the only story, but it's probably the foundation, the main foundational story for Megillah Esther. 
I once counted up references to the Megillah. I, I think I came 50, somehow 50 different references and language and theme of the Joseph's narrative's relationship to Megillah Esther. And when you look at a book, Megillah's great book, every book has its great turning points. Now in the Megillah, and sometimes it's hard to know what the great turning points are, but in Megillah Esther, it's not hard to know. There's one great scene in the Megillah, which is the turning point, which is the name of my book on the Megillah in Hebrew. Imriet Kozot, for such a time as this. It's the name of my book, the Hebrew. It hasn't been translated yet. Written by Ben Sion Ovadia. It's my Torah, beautifully written. And the fact of the matter is, the great moment in the Megillah is when Mordechai is convincing Esther to go to the king. She initially refuses to go. And he somehow manages to convince her to go to the king to take this tremendous risk. And Esther, at the end of the conversation, agrees to go. And her last words are, Kasher avadati avadati, if I perish, I perish. Now the last words in this conversation here, when Jacob agrees to send Benjamin, Jacob says, Kasher shakolti shakolti. If I am bereft, I am bereft, which is found in verse number 14. Um, so the two stories are actually related to each other. The Megillah shows the great moment in the Megillah. There are several other main moments, but probably the great moment in the Megillah, when Mordechai is trying to convince the queen to intervene on behalf of the Jews, which initially she refuses to do. It is very interesting that the author of the Megillah, whoever that may be, seizes upon the Joseph narrative in general, but the one story it seizes on, it seizes absolutely critical, is the story right that we've read uh, today, which is, we haven't finished it yet, it's Yehuda convincing his father to send Benjamin. The Megillah sees that story as the parallel to Mordechai convincing Esther to go to the king. So I did want to pick up with that next week, but before we get to that, there's much more to Judah's speech over here. It, it, it's a, quite a brilliant speech. And it's one of the great moments. You really get a sense that if anything's going to happen to this family in terms of reconciling the family and solving all these problems, that Yehuda will play a central role, which of course is why Yehuda Batama's story is in chapter 38. It's just after the sale of Joseph. It's before Yosef Hurad Mitzrayimah. And the Chumash, as it sometimes does, it gives us a, a, a formula to solve the problem of building this family, this ruptured family, somehow putting it together. And it's, it will emerge from the story of Judah and Tamar, of the Eravon, of the confession, etc. And now Judah takes center stage over here. In contrast to Reuven, kill my two kids. That's not, it's not going to work that way. That's not responsibility. Judah understands what it means to take responsibility. He did it once before. And it wasn't easy. And now we will do this again. So we'll continue next week with um, this conversation of Yaakov and Yehuda. And then we'll move to the brothers going back to Egypt. Uh, we'll stop at this point. Anybody have any last words or insights that want to, or questions? Speak up now. You have a couple of minutes and we'll stop. Anybody?
Okay, then we'll stop. Continue next time. Um, I think Yael had a question. Yes. A hand up. Let's hear. Um, I'm not here yet. How, how, come, how come Yaakov is now called Israel twice? Well, it's related to what I said before. It, it, it's, a, it's a good question in general. When is he called? This is, this is a question that's been asked by many people. It's a good one. Where does the Chumash call him Israel? And where does the Chumash call him Jacob? I would say that he's called Israel, in my view. There are other, other solutions, or other, I would say solutions, other hypotheses about when. But to me, he's called Israel at actually critical moments. And this is a critical, if not the critical moment. It's a moment where, where Yehud is going to figure out a way to convince Jacob. And Jacob has to take this risk, which is not an easy risk to take. He does favor Rachel's children, and he only has one left. And he's concerned what happened to Joseph may happen to Binyamin. So the fact that he's willing to do this makes it possible to build the family. So when this is a critical juncture, as I mentioned before, the Megillah saw this obviously in the key story of the Megillah is based on the story right here. So then it's called Israel. It's called Yisrael at that moment, it's critical junctures. I think that's the main solution to the problem. You have to see when else he's called Israel. Uh, when he blesses Joseph's children, he's called Israel. And there's a good reason for that. But we'll, get, we'll come to that as we proceed through the story. Okay. I, yeah. I'm sorry, well, you know, when uh, the, the, the brothers say, uh, when they find the money in their sacks and they say, you know, what did he do, Lanu? Yes. Does this implicate all those who were not mentioned in the, in the original story? I mean, we, we, only have, we only hear about Yehuda and, and we hear, you know, Shimon and we, we hear, you know, Ruvain, but none of the other brothers say anything. So, that may be true, but when the Chumash speaks about hating him, he puts it in general terms. It doesn't mention a specific brother who is jealous or hates him. And all the brothers go off without him, too. Not just one brother or two. There are, there are ringleaders. Look, of the 12 sons of Jacob, six of them are mentioned narratively. Five of them speak. Benjamin never speaks, but he's mentioned. Six of the sons are never mentioned altogether. We know they exist. Naftali, Usher, God, Yisachar's ruin, and uh, one more a God. Not, they, they exist. They're part of the twelve, which is an important number. Right. But when the Chumash speaks about hating Joseph, it's put in general terms. Jealous of Joseph, general terms. When the brothers think Joseph will kill them, they all think it. Not just one or two. They all can't stand the guy. How do we know that they all think it? I mean, they, they're all brothers. They all went to Joseph at the end. He's going to kill us. That's what they think. After their father has died, they collectively think Joseph will kill us. And they all go to Joseph and say, we'll take, take us as your slaves. And he cries. There's no distinction made there between the brothers. Joseph and the brothers, all the brothers. Yes, some brothers are more important. Some brothers don't talk at all. Some brothers are ringleaders, etc. But the Chumash only deals narratively with, with, with six brothers. The other six brothers are never mentioned. Mm. And when it talks about the brothers, it includes them. They're all, they're all blessed at the end. They're all one family. And they all can't stand the guy, with the possible exception of Benjamin, who doesn't seem to figure, figure in the story. He's important, but he never talks. Uh, so otherwise, I would say, since the Chumash puts it in general terms, 
we have to assume that they all, generally speaking, A, don't like him, and maybe more than that, don't trust him, which they clearly don't trust him. But we'll get to those things later on. Um, okay, we'll stop at this point then. Uh, good to be back. Looking forward to continuing. And uh, okay, have a good day. Until next time. Thank, thank you. you so very much. Thank you. Um, Rabbi David Silver, and thank you everyone for joining us. If you would like to see more of Drisha's fantastic Springsman classes, you can go to 5783.drisha.org slash spring. And I'm looking forward to seeing you all next week.